They went across the lake to the region of Gerasenes. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore through the chains and broke apart the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you impure spirit. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. He gave them permission, and the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and countryside. And the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons, sitting there dressed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him go, but said, Go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went home and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And all the people were amazed. Welcome to First Christian Today, and uh, it's great to see our kids reading the scriptures to us and leading us in worship. I'm very glad you're with us. For guests, my name is Wayne. I'm part of the pastoral team, and uh, thanks for joining us in worship today here in the West. Everybody in the East, we're very glad you're with us as well, people down in Lovington, and particularly if you're worshiping with us online today, we're very glad you're with us. We have literally hundreds of people each weekend joining us online, and that's very cool. I'm anxious, by the way, for next week, Hymnoscope. Um, Les and I are going to lead portions of that, and we're, gonna, we're, gonna, we're not going to do Stump the Piano Player, but it might come close. Since I'm going to play the piano, you're going to call, say we want to do this hymn, and I'll go, okay, we'll see how this goes. So we'll look forward to seeing that next weekend, okay? In the meanwhile, I do want to um, invite you to take your Bible, please, and turn to uh, the book of Mark. Perhaps you're new to Scripture, in which case I'll help you out. Mark is about three-quarters of the way through the Bible, or you could find it on your smartphone. Those of you who are online, there's a tab on the computer which will take you to the book of Mark. As we begin today, I want to tell you, um, if you will, a story about my father, uh, because today we're going to look at miracles and healing and what do we do and we want that to come about in our lives. Um, uh, our family has a long Australian history. We were born and raised in Australia, all of us, and uh, going back to the early 1800s. 
Um, but they now live in Vancouver, British Columbia, one of the suburbs of, of Vancouver. And they've been married for well over 60 years. And uh, Les and I are headed up there to visit them at the end of the month. They had me at a very young age. And when I say at a young age, I'm talking about me. I was brand new when I was born of my mother. I was very young at the time. And um, I, I was appreciated that I came into a young family. Uh, my dad's occupation throughout the majority... Well, you have to forgive me, folks. I'm going to... Uh, this changing your time, the time, I mean, why do we do it at two o'clock in the morning? I'm so tired of getting up at two o'clock in the morning to change the clocks, just to. It's gonna be one of those days, be ready. My father was a mechanic uh, in various iterations throughout his working career, and my mother worked in bakeries um, uh, throughout her working career. Uh, they were teenagers uh, in the early 50s and um, coming out of World War II in Australia, as is the case here in the US, young men faced the draft. And so dad was conscripted into the Australian army. And years later, his doctors made some assessments about his time in the army. Uh, it was their opinion that dad's health was impacted poorly as a result of his service to our Australian nation. They suspect that the early marches and the long marches did irreparable damage to his joints and probably actually kicked in some problems within his immune system and so that he developed severe, I mean severe rheumatoid arthritis at a very young age. Really from the time I was about 10 or 11, he was just barely on the other side of 30, I remember that he was a man who struggled with pain a lot. He served our family by going to work every day. Um, and the, our family served at the local church and so forth and so on. But part of dad's life involved um, pain that grew drastically and incrementally over the years. As I said, it probably started his late 20s, early 30s. But by the time I went to college, he was barely 40. Um, he had a constant companion at all times, a debilitating pain that brought uh, just all kinds of struggles. Severe, severe rheumatoid arthritis. Now, throughout those years, you're talking 50 years since that was first put in play, uh, Dad has been to all kinds of physicians and had all kinds of help along the way from the medical community. For many years, he used to have gold shots once a month or so, and that would, would literally, you can imagine how expensive that was. And then um, for decades, he was on a cancer drug, uh, methotrexate, and... Um, after I left the house, um, when, when it became even more acute, I would remember mom saying on the phone, your dad's have, had a very bad day today. Uh, he couldn't get out of bed. He actually crawled to the bathroom. So, um, so I'm not trying to draw attention to say, oh, woe was me or anything, or woe was my father, other than through it all, my father honored God. And uh, there were mo moments when... Um, we as kids would actually anoint him with oil. I remember in the, in the concept and the practice of scripture, actually pray for his healing. We prayed and prayed and he still has it. Did we do something wrong? We prayed for a miracle and we've waited for 50 years. Do you have that sort of struggle in some portion of your family? Perhaps you do. Or maybe you have a malady that you've just learned of recently, and you, you'd say, I am desperately in need of God's intervention. Or maybe there's a recurring illness, or 
something you learned this week, perhaps, that's a formidable cancer that, okay, so you know where this is going to go, and I mean, the results could be dire, and what do you do with all that? Your brain is miswired somewhere or other, and it displays that miswiring in a cycle that seems the same every six months. Something goes wonky, and you, I mean, you bottom out with a cycle of mental or emotional struggles that seems like, in the bo- and when you're down there, man, you have no way of getting out. What do you do with all of that? You pray. You pray for a miracle, and then you wait. Where's the miracle? What would Jesus say about that? What would Jesus do? We're taking seven weeks right now to make our way through the book of Mark looking at some of the statements that Jesus made. These are specific statements that Jesus said, this is how you should approach life. This is what I'm going to do in this. In this. Some of you may have a red letter edition Bible where Jesus' words are printed in red. And so we're, we're making our run up towards Easter to make certain that as we get to Easter, we've had some good time as a congregation to focus on the story of Jesus. If I want you to do more than just listen to what I have to say or Pastor Brian has to say through this series. As a matter of fact, Every Sunday afternoon, we drop a uh, devotion out on the web, and we'd like to invite you to t- get a hold of that. If you're not part of our texting service, you can step into that by texting the word FIRST Decatur to 24587. We have literally hundreds and hundreds of people who listen to that every week. We'd invite you to do the same. But for today, what did Jesus say about miracles and about healing, and what do we do about disease and struggle and pain? Because who are we kidding? It impacts all of us, Right? From the big stuff to lying on the side of the bed, lying on your side in the bed in the midst of the flu, you know, stomach flu. You, you, how do we manage that? Let's see what Jesus did. Okay, Mark chapter Mark chapter uh, three, beginning at verse one, we read this: Jesus went into the synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. So we have a man in front of Jesus who apparently has some sort of—I I don't know what the right language is a deformity, a a handicap, a struggle of some sort. We don't know if it's as a result of an accident. We don't know if it's a result of some uh, situation of birth. All we know is this man's hand is not correct. Shall we put it that way? Now, there were some people apparently looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. That would have been against the law to do that kind of work on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everybody. So he's not going to, he's not worried about, he's going to see what happens here. I mean, Jesus asked them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? They remained silent. He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. He said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. The Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. So, it's at that point, by the way, at this point in Mark chapter 3, that the trajectory is set to where Jesus is going to be executed. So, this is very early in Jesus' ministry, and yet the Jewish authorities and the Roman authorities are already plotting as to how they're going to get rid of this guy. Because he did something on the Sabbath. What do you mean? What's, What's with that? Well... The Sabbath in that time and in our time was from sundown Friday to sundown Saturday. So the Sabbath is on a Saturday. And during that period of time in Jewish culture 
And in Jewish law, you were not allowed to do any work. And it's not only in ancient Israel that's the case, but in modern day Israel, this also plays out today. Most of the nation, not completely, but it's fair to say, most of the nation stops regular commerce starting at sundown Friday for the next 24 hours through to sundown Saturday. And there are some practices that we might find unusual in that regard. For example, during the Sabbath, it is against the law, if you will, against the religious law and against the common practice, both now and and then, to light a fire. Because lighting a fire would indicate you're doing some work. So what are you going to do about lighting the oven, for example? What are you going to do about turning the lights on? Because the lights is an electronic charge that is similar to a spark, right? So think about this. If you go to Israel today uh, and you're there from anywhere from sundown Friday through sundown Saturday, the elevators don't work normally. Why is that? Well, because if you come up to the elevator and you push the button that says, I want to go up or down, you are creating, if you will, an electronic charge, which is like a spark, which is like a fire, which is work. You are working by doing that. So how do you go? You're on the, you're on the, you're on the ground floor, and you want to go to the third floor. You either walk the stairs, or you wait for the elevator to show up. As a matter of fact, all the elevators in Israel are programmed this way. That from throughout the Sabbath period, Friday night, Saturday night, the elevators automatically stop at every floor going up and every floor going down. So you don't have to do anything. You literally walk up and you wait for the ele- whatever floor you're on, you wait for the elevator to show up and it will show up. It will automatically open on every floor. You get in and if you're on the four- first floor and you've got to go to the 45th floor, it's a long time. One, two, you go, you, you'll stop at every, every floor, but eventually you'll get there. So the, this, this, we would say, well, that's kind of, un- well, it's, it's different, isn't it? And that's the story and that's the sort of culture that Jesus was working in, if you will. Any religious, any work at all was against the religious law, if you will. And healing was considered work. And apparently, Jesus, though, thought that healing was more than that one particular rule. And his, his, his healing ministry starts right here in Mark chapter 3 and goes forward for the rest of his ministry. And it grew crowds. Big crowds. People came to see what was going on. And I wonder what it was like in those crowds. The scriptures tell us that the people were pushing and shoving to get close to him, clamoring for a touch. The scenes must have been quite chaotic. And I suppose it would be the same today. That if supernatural healing broke out in some dramatic fashion like this within the context of our worship services, man, it would be hard to keep the crowds at bay. You get that. Then why doesn't that happen? What do you think about supernatural healing? Do you believe that healing can occur in our culture and in our day? Now we have to acknowledge that we live in a different setting in terms of illnesses than in Mark chapter 3. Modern medical practices provide vehicles for healing of all sorts of diseases that, you know, in days gone by they'd be terminal immediately, you know, or they would have dramatic impact. Cataracts these days. Lots of people are blind in the ancient world probably from cataracts. Cataracts can be cured these days. Diabetes can be managed. Cancers can be cut out or diminished. We have antibiotics that flow down, that, I mean, they just throw down the gauntlet against all kinds of um, infections. If you've got your appendix about, it's about to burst in days gone by, it would have been life-threatening. These days it can be taken out. The, the list of how modern medicine brings healing to us is quite dramatic. 
And I thought it'd be helpful for you as we talk about this business of healing to hear about how physicians view this matter. So I've invited my friend and your, many of your friends as well, George Lou, to join us on stage. George and his family are part of the life of our church. And um, we want to get a little impact, in, in a little sense of how this sort of stuff impacts you. So let's start with, what do you do? I am a general surgeon. What does that mean? It means I take care of everything from here down. Generally speaking. Generally speaking. <laughs> That's <yes>. right. <laughs> So how long have you been doing this? I have been a surgeon since 1988 when I started my residency. And how many surgeries do you do regularly? I do about a thousand surgeries a year. Or That's remarkable. Year. That's absolutely remarkable. So do you remember what, when, when your first, what, let me ask this, Can you, your first surgery, is it rec, you recollect it? Yes. What was it? It was a hemorrhoidectomy. I was going to ask what it was like. We'll pass on that, perhaps. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> that would be better. Let, let, why, 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 now, see, now you got me interested. Why, why was that your first surgery? Uh, well, you know, you're a first-year resident. They're not going to give you an appendix to remove or a gallbladder to remove or a tumor to remove. They're going to make you drain an abscess or do a hemorrhoidectomy. <laughs> Okay, we'll, we'll just pass on that. We'll just move on, okay? So you facilitate... Do, do you see yourself as a healer or you're facilitating... What's in your headspace as you're, frankly, digging around on the insides of people? Not that you dig around, but you sort of do. I try not to dig. <laughs> uh, so I really do believe that, uh, you know... I've been trained and have done many surgeries, and uh, when I operate on someone and take out a tumor or uh, remove a, a cancer, um, I kind of put everything back together without that part. And it's pretty amazing to see what I do, you know, under loops. So, like, for example, if I remove a tumor, uh, in the bowel, I'll staple the bowel together and then I'll sew it up. And you, what do you call those? I have loops. So, you know, the, the, the people that look at jewelry very closely, well, I have them also for operating. And so I can magnify the field and actually see what I'm doing. And uh, so basically I use thread and sew the bowel together. And that thread actually dissolves. And if you look at it, even six weeks later, it's totally healed. It's the same thing for your finger. Like, you know, I cook, cook, and I cut an onion and I cut my finger. I glue it. I look at it. It's healed in five days. And my, my fingerprint is exactly the same. I don't do that. God heals that. Is it... Are there moments when you're sitting there or standing there and go, I can't believe I'm doing this? Um, I am appreciative that God has given me the hands to be a surgeon. And it is pretty awesome to be seeing a patient in the post-operative period and to know that they're better and that God healed them and that 
he allowed me to move a few things around to help. I think it's more than moving a few things around. Yeah. But bless you. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Moving a few things around is what we do in the living room when we change the furniture. <laughs> yeah. So we're very glad for doctors and their teams. They make our lives longer, more pleasant and whole. But who are we kidding? There's still those moments when the physicians say, we don't know what to do or the... Uh, and and, and you've, I've been in those settings because as a pastor, you go in and you sit in the room when they're about, somebody's about to get a diagnosis and you, you hear physicians kind of, well, we don't know. What do you do about those settings that go beyond what a visit to the doctor or going down to the pharmacy to get an antibiotic are going to do? Here's what I believe. You have to, th you have to think really for a few minutes with me, as I'm, if you will, building a case this morning. Here's what Christians believe. Christians believe that Jesus Christ came and died for us. And we have this incredible ability to have this faith to say, Jesus has taken care of my sins and eternal life is brought to me because like other Christians, I proclaimed that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And as a follower of Jesus Christ, to say he is in charge of everything within my life. And I trust him, not only for now, but I trust him for my eternal destiny. And we see people making that proclamation all the time. We see them following that up with baptism. As a matter of fact, if you've not made that decision yet today to proclaim that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, that namely he's in charge of your life, we'd love for you to make that today. We'd love for you to come to the place to say, I want to step over the line of faith and declare myself to be a follower of Jesus. And if you'd like to follow that up with baptism, we're starting to get ready for numbers of baptisms coming up for Easter. If you need more information, reach out to us by all means. That's coming for Easter. But for now, can I just say, it seems odd to me that while we fully believe that Jesus' supernatural work will cover our sins and get us to eternity, get us to heaven, why is it so much harder to expect that same God to bring healing to us in the same supernatural way? Now, I want to be very careful. I want you to hear this beyond the shadow of a doubt, that neither salvation nor supernatural healing are based on anything we do. It's not that you have to have just the right words or just the right moment. Or anything. No. Salvation and healing comes to us through a work of God. It's a, it's a gift of grace. Always it's grace. I'm simply in the place where I'd say, man, I want to experience more of God's grace in whatever form heaven decides. I say, bring it on. Bring it on. So yes, I believe in supernatural healing, and I'd like to see it in more evidence today These in our church. I suspect you would also, and I would like to see it for my father. So what do you do? Since we rely on Jesus for salvation, why are we struggling to rely on him for our life? the nitty-gritty of our lives. What do you do when there's a cancer diagnosis? Or can you pray for a family member when there's a, an indication that, man, this, there, there's a lifelong struggle of MS that's going to be last now for 20, the next 20 years. Or there's macular degeneration in, in uh, your grandfather's eyes. And at 67, he's going to lose the ability to see and he's going to live another 20 years beyond that. What? What? Oh, it's more simply. You got an eight-year-old, come home from school, bring in the latest infection that's running rampant at the school. What are you going to do? Some ideas here. First of all, in those moments, in these moments, what does God call us to do? 
We lean into God through prayer. We absolutely pray. Scripture says to pray without ceasing. Pray that you'll be healed. That's a great prayer. Pray that this diagnosis or this struggle, that God, you, in the midst of the questions I have, will you work? Because here's what happens. When we pray without ceasing, you know what we're saying? It's very cool. You're probably not aware of this. When we pray in the midst of every situation, here's what we are saying. God, I'm not in the management business. You're in the management business. I'm not in the control business. You're in charge of my life. People come to me sometimes as a joke and say, you know, in the winter they say, hey, pastor, you're a religious person. Can you do something about the, the, the weather? And I, here's what I say. I'm in sales. Somebody else is in management, namely God. So, so, and it's the same way when it comes to these matters. We're in the sales department... We've got a product to sell, if you will, namely the, the salvation in Jesus Christ. But praying without ceasing gives this approach that in all settings, in all questions, in all decisions, in all crises, in all illnesses, we say, God, you're in control of every aspect of my life because it's ludicrous. It's ludicrous for anyone to think, God, don't worry about this, I got this one. Who says that? Frankly, I know humans are made in God. It is God's image. We have inbred qualities of strength and determination and drive. And being human has great advantages. We can conquer all sorts of obstacles and many endeavors. However, friend, any approach to life that is based on human strength alone is arrogant. It's contrary to Scripture. Scripture says, in Him, in God, we live and move and have our being. Not in us, but in God. So here's the truth. Humans... We can work hard and we can excel it to our greatest potential only when we lean into God for all things, whether it be good or bad, enjoyable or troubling in moments of joy, in the mundane stuff, and in the crises of health issues. Prayer says, I'm not in charge, you are. That's the first thing. Then I've got something else to get, bring to you today that's a little more awkward. And again, you've got to think with me a little bit longer here because it might trouble you at first hearing. I'll start with this way. You've heard the story, perhaps, of the hypochondriac. Always sick, always complaining about being sick. Who dies? He leaves strict instructions of what should be etched on his tombstone. John Doe lived this time, died this time. And in quotation marks, I've been telling you I was sick. What's that? Why am I telling you that? Well, because... Christians lean into God knowing there are long-term plans in place that, frankly, we are sick. In other words, the view of the hypochondriac, hypochondriac might be real because we know that even when God does and will intervene in the struggles of this life, it's only about our present time. Because do you know what the long-term results are of life on this earth? You're going to die. So you go, oh, great, Wayne. I come to church. I expect to have a sense of hope in the midst of a crazy and evil world. And the best you can tell me is I'm going to give me, I'm going to die. Give me a break. Well, think of it this way. There's, there's, there's lots of stories of Jesus' life. And there's one in the Gospel of John where Jesus is walking along and he comes across a funeral procession. And it's a young man has died and... Um, 
his father's already dead. So his mother being the widow now is now in great trouble because this is in the ancient world where women don't have the value. They can't make a living. It's a real problem. And so it's, it's going to be, she is in deep grief, not only the, over the death of her son, but how is she going to live? And in a moment of great joy and miraculous wonder, Jesus comes across the scene. And he goes over to the lady and he says to her, I've got good news for you. This is going to be really, really good. And he goes over to the young man. And the scriptures tell us in the Gospel of John that he actually looks at the dead body and he says to him, young man, I say to you, get up. And you know what happened? That young man begins to breathe again. He's dead. But then he begins to breathe. And you can only imagine the crowd's astonishment. The mother had her son back for the rest of her life. And it was like, really good. She's, she, her whole world has turned around for the good. Except for there's one thing that maybe you haven't thought of in the past. Do you know what happened in the future? A number of years down the road to that young fellow. He died again for crying out loud. The gall. Give me a break. You know, we raised you up and you died. You, had the, you, had the, you went and died again for crying out loud. Here's what Christians know. That in the midst of our struggles, we know that life is not limited to a short 45 days, a short 8 years, or even a short 85 years. We'd all like to forego the struggle that's going to come for us at some point. We'd all like to forego dying. I get that. But it ain't going to happen. Wayne, give me something to work with here today. Okay, don't lose heart then, Scripture says. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. Our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. It's not just about today. We fix our eyes on, on, not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, since what we have around here is just temporary, but what is seen is to eternal. In other words, in the midst of our illnesses, we have this hope that goes beyond disease. Yes, we pray, we look for miracles, and sometimes they come along, and it's marvelous in those moments, and I get it, like you. I'm working and living for a moment that goes beyond a broken leg or a cancer diagnosis or a bad back. Because like you, when illness hits, <laughs> you've had the stomach flu, right? Here's how I am. I'm laying on my left side on, on the bed, and I get into a fetal position, and I just moan. <laughs> That's at three o'clock in the morning. You do that, right? Sure you do. And we know what the moan is? Oh God, is this an illness leading to my death? Oh! Sure we might make light of that. But what when it's, what when it's that quiet stare at the ceiling all night long because of a far more serious diagnosis? And then the moaning is dead quiet because you don't have words. What do we do in that situation? Scripture speaks to this. It says, we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. What's the hope? 
Mark chapter four, keep reading with me because in this, in this period in Jesus' life, there's this really cool story at the end of Mark chapter four, verse 35. Jesus got all the crowds pushing around him. There's all this healing going on. It's really wonderful. And everybody's really into it. So when evening comes, verse 35, he said to his disciples, let's go over to the other side of the, of the lake. Because leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. Because they just, they didn't need some time away from all these people wanting to be healed. There were also other boats with them. And then something that, this is up in northern, the, north, the northern part of the Sea of Galilee. And squalls come up there, storms come up there on a regular basis, and they're very dangerous. A squall came up, the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus is in the stern sleeping on a, kish, on a cushion, and the disciples woke up and said, Jesus, we're about to go down, we're going down, we're going to drown. He got up, he rebuked the wind and said to the waves, quiet, be still. The wind died down, it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, why are you so afraid? What's with your faith? Where have, you, where have you been? Why are you worried about this momentary issue? They were terrified and asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves? They obey him. Now, here's what's interesting to me. When preachers have preached that story in years past, decades, centuries, they said, and I, I get it, Jesus calms the storms in your life. That's very nice. I, I get that. But I, I think we've, the, when we've preached it this way, we've missed the point. Because there's nothing there that says Jesus calms the storms of your life. I know he does, but the scripture, I think we've taken liberties with the scripture that are maybe not right. Because what's the focal point of that passage? It's the disciples. It's the disciples suddenly realizing, not only is Jesus calming the storms of our lives, if you will, but Jesus, the one we're following, has authority over nature. That's incredible, friends. Because here's what we as followers of Jesus say. We say that we are following Jesus, the creator of all things, the Lord of all lords, the king of all kings, the ultimate ruler of all. And that the one who loved us so much, that's the one who came and died for us. And so when we wonder about how to respond to a need for healings or miracles, we pray, we plan for the long term that yes, we may die from this. But we also discover that in both illnesses and miracles, we lean into Jesus. And that's where we learn that he is, the, he is the, not only the ruler of nature, but of all life matters. And then whether we live or die, whether we smile or cry, whether we face struggle or joy, whether we lay on our side in the bed moaning, we know this, that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, any powers, height nor depth, anything else in all of creation, nothing, none of that, none of that junk, none of the struggles, nothing, friends, nothing in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so we wait. And while we wait, we pray. We take the long-term view, knowing that the end, we, we know what the end of the story is, and we know of Jesus' role in our lives and in the cosmos, and we live in this, this struggle between hope and what's that? And between the what-ifs and the what-abouts and the assurances of Jesus' teaching ministry and his healing ministry impacting us. And we go, Lord, I've got rheumatoid arthritis, I've got cancer, I've got a struggle, I've got the stomach flu, I've got a shriveled hand. What do we do? Well, I like what Jesus did in Mark chapter three. He's there on the Sabbath, and you're not supposed to heal on the Sabbath. But he doesn't say to the man, hey, come behind in a little quiet room and I'll see if we can't pray for you. No, 
Jesus, with great boldness, he says, stand up in front of everybody and stretch out your hand. I love the fact that God Almighty says, I want you in boldness to come and stand up in front of everybody, stretch out that hand. And so, friend, I would say to you today, in the midst of the mess, in the midst of the struggle, in the midst of the stuff, and you wonder what if and what about and all that stuff, you go, God, I'm going to come with boldness before you and I'm going to stretch out my hand and I'm going to believe for better days. I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm going to die 40 years from now, you know, 60 years from now, 10 years from now. I'm up for that. But in the meanwhile, I'm stretching out my hand and God, I'm anticipating that you're going to bring better days and you're going to be the one who heals me in the name of Jesus Christ. I'm going to live in hope. Let's pray together. Father, I've got friends here today who like me. We've got, we got more questions about this sort of topic than we do have answers in the sense that I don't know if all the words could put it together. Because we've seen situations, Lord, where people have been desperately ill and they've been healed. And then, Lord, we've also seen situations where people have been desperately ill and it didn't turn out so well. Father, we pray that we would live our lives based on on letting you be in charge. We're going to pray without ceasing and in praying without ceasing, we're acknowledging that you're in charge. And as we pray without ceasing, Lord, we pray for healing. And we'll do what Scripture calls us to do, to lay hands on on the sick and anoint them with oil. And we'll believe desperately and fully and completely. And then we'll wait. And we're going to rejoice. We're going to do this boldly, Lord. We're not going to just be kind of quiet about it. We're going to do it boldly anticipating your work in our lives. Lord, for those who are here today who are facing a real struggle with illness right now, where, where the, man, it's bleak, I pray, God, that you would, by your grace, impart a gift of healing to them today. In Christ's name.